HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association, real education for people who believe in real food. For more information, visit nutritionaltherapy.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today is episode number 50 of this show. I can't believe that I've done 50 episodes of this show in just over a year. Um, I'm in this in this studio every single Wednesday. So if this is the first time you're listening or if you're a regular listener, thank you for listening. And if it's the first time, there's 49 other episodes you can listen to after you listen to this one. Um, I'm excited today to welcome uh, Peter Meehan to the studio. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, Peter is the editor of Lucky Peach. Uh, he's a dad. He's the author of a new book called Power Vegetables from uh, the folks at Lucky Peach um, that came out yesterday. Beautiful new book. And uh, he adds this to a stable of award-winning books, that a uh, few of which have a place on my shelf at home, uh, the Frankie Spuntino book and also the Momofuku cookbooks. Nice. Um, thanks, Peter, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, I think, uh, you know, we first met probably actually through the music scene kind of coming out of the like specter folk magic markers world yeah because um, your brother played in specter folk yeah. for uh six months or eight yep. months or yeah and that's actually the the opening music is actually a piece of his oh nice he wrote that so uh wrote that wrote that for me so uh, you know i think it's it's always interesting i think um you know as we as we get older, you and I are about the same age. Um, you know, to find these kind of like connections that you have in your life to people that aren't necessarily always from the same angle, right? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, that was my connection to. You know, I was into music as like a teenager, and then I moved to New York, and and I made food the focus of my life. But I got back into music because of friends I made because I was into food, you know, so Got it's it. kind of a circuitous way around, um, to, to get back to it. Right. Right. I mean, I think music and food are really, you know, interconnected, um, if for, if, if for no other reason than often the jobs 
in the food service industry allow you to also be a musician to be yeah to to play music and yeah and then there's you know I have a hard time uh, with like creating coherent analogies between the creativity that goes into music and the creativity that goes into food or writing but I think that as far as like comfortable bedmates you know before or after you play a show you always need a place to eat or drink yep. and and if you know those things you are a useful person to musicians um, absolutely I mean I, I definitely think the you know coming out of the sort of DIY um, you know punk stuff of the of the 80s and 90s you know personally being in bands in high school in California and stuff you know anytime somebody went on tour when I was in college and touring bands would come through a lot of the conversation was about where do you eat on tour I mean Waffle House I think or at least for me only has the mythology that it has because of bands not for any other reason and, and carrying that story with them yeah no it was uh, I mean that's a Mark Eibold who's a, a friend of mine and somebody who plays in um, Spectre Folk in the, the rare occasions that we play um, you know was a kind of a you know it's it's creepy to say this about somebody who's become like a great friend, but like he was like a hero of mine because he was the bass player in Pavement. And sure. I remember back in the middle 2000s when I was writing 25 and Under, um, I remember hanging out at the Tompkins Square dog park and, you know, somebody was like, oh, yeah, like Mark Eibold, the bass player from Pavement, tends at the Great Jones. And I've been going to the Great Jones since the late 90s when I moved to the city. I just I didn't know what Mark looked like. It was like the pre-internet days before sure. you Googled everything all the time. And... uh and I remember being, like, really nervous when I'd be there on nights when Mark was bartending. And then one night he was talking to, to friends at the bar about places to eat in Queens. And he knew more than people in the food writing business who I knew about places to go. And, and we ended up striking up a, a conversation and a, and a friendship and, and now have, you know, played together uh, but, but also worked together a lot. I mean, he's done the food styling on almost every book I've done uh, since 2009. Oh, that's that's a re- that I didn't realize that he had come sort of from the from the uh, music world into the food writing world in that he, Well, yeah, and he well after Pavement broke up, I think he worked for Andes Root who was a food stylist like a grand am food stylist for Gourmet. Sure. And so he had worked for her in the early 2000s, so he had this experience and when the Momofuku book was uh, coming together there was a it was just a great opportunity for us to get to work together on that and then we've we've done stuff together since now the the Mamafuku book is that how you came to know David Chang was through work on that or did you meet him separately uh, so I wrote the first review in the times of Momofuku Noodle Bar in like 2004 oh when you were doing 25 and under when I was doing 25 and under right. and then I started eating there kind of like every Saturday at noon when it opened to like beat the line with Mark Bittman, who I used to work with, work for. Um, and Mark got to know Dave, did a, did a column in the Times with Dave, and then we would, we would go, but Dave didn't know who I was. Again, pre-internet, no pictures, you know. I was just some kid eating with Mark. Right. And at some point, Mark was just like, this is stupid. You guys should know each other. And that was how we got introduced um, was was through that. And then, you know, and I was trying to keep some degree of separation between myself and Dave so I could write about him. Um, and then I was at a concert in Greenpoint one night, and I think I was seeing the Hold Steady. And Dave came up behind me at the show with a beer and was, you know, and offered me a beer. And I was like, okay, well, I could either write about this guy, but clearly 
he's going to be super famous and Bruni's going to get to write about him. Right. Or I could take a beer, <laughs> which in the moment was a very appealing option. Sure. So I took the beer and then we started hanging out after that, going to like restaurants on Northern Boulevard in Queens and, you know, and becoming friends. And that was a couple more years before we started working on the Momofuku book. Got it. Um, having written the 25 and under column for a long time for the Times, um, do you still think about restaurants in that sort of construct like do you like look at a menu and think like would this fit into the 25 and under well 25 and under was a tough rubric even at the time because prices were going up and i think eric asimov who started the column and wrote it for 13 years before i took it over um you know i think had slowly inched the 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 scale of restaurant that was comfortable in 25 and under up and up and i tried to you know, dial it back down and make it more literally, you know, you could get two or three things for 25 bucks. Right. But, but it was constrictive at the time. That said, I still find restaurants operating in that strata to be really compelling and interesting and exciting places to eat, which is not to say that I don't enjoy and haven't eaten at lots of, like, super fancy restaurants. But, you know, generally given the choice, I mean, I'm out in L.A. a lot, um, by choice and for work and because I'm friends with Jonathan Gold out there and it's always like I always want to go east at the San Gabriel Valley more than I want to go sure. west and eat somewhere fancy in Hollywood. Sure. I mean, to me, I always find that kind of thing um, compelling because of the idea, even if it's in a neighborhood I never go to and it would never be my like neighborhood spot. I find it compelling to eat at restaurants where I could like where you could reasonably afford to eat like yeah, I mean, that's a... Three times it, a week, right? Yeah, like, and, it, and that's always... I mean, yeah, aff affordability in restaurants it has, you know, the, the democratic quality that that brings to the food that they serve and the people in the dining room is not something to be just, like, easily overlooked. Right. Um, I noticed, just looking at LuckyPeach.com today, that uh, Zach Brooks, a good friend of mine, just wrote a, wrote a piece for you guys. Yeah, he did a Korean noodle guide, um, which was something we've... You know, we published this uh, regional guide to ramen in the first issue, and it's one of those things that every time it pops up on our Facebook or something, it, it, it you know the internet goes wild. So we occasionally delve back into those things, but but they're they're hard to do and they're hard to get right. And you know, Zach put a lot of work into putting that together and interviewing a few uh, chefs, you know, Esther Choi and uh, Sui Kim at Insa and Chang on a few things to get commentary because I think there's one thing to saying, okay, these are the, you know, t 10 Korean noodle dishes you're most likely to find in a restaurant. And there's another thing that's important, which is getting the context in which, you know, people whose culture those are, you know, a part of, you know, with the approach to eating them. When do you eat that dish? How do you right. eat that dish? How does it fit into your life or your dining landscape? Sure. Is it is it related to seasonality? Is it related yeah. to harvest? Is it related to certain fish being available? Yeah. Or even like, you know, with I think with Korean noodles, there was something, and this is something I learned from Dave in that period before we were writing anything together and we were just going to restaurants like uh, Ja Jingmin, which is, a, a, you know, wheat noodles with like a a black bean paste um, on it is something that you only get in what are essentially Korean Chinese restaurants. And you always get judging men with jampong, which is like a, a red seafood stew. And like, there's like, there's this, this set of dishes that is how you go to eat for that. And that's, you know, like if you're going, you know, you're not just going out for Korean food, you're going to be going out for right. judging men and jampong, or you're going to be go you know, 
you're, you're going to be going to different restaurants for different places. And I think having that knowledge as an eater empowers you to make good choices when you're going to restaurants of cultures that, you know, that aren't yours and you're, and yeah. you're trying to find the right place to eat the right thing. Yeah. Um, that brings up uh, something that I just sort of just popped into my head um, thinking about, you know, being an adventurous eater. And I felt like I, I have been for a long time and remembering a very specific moment in a Korean restaurant in Boston um, must have been like 20 years ago. And there was a piece of the menu that was only in Korean. And so I started asking the waitress, you know, well, what is all this stuff? And she looked at me <clears throat> and obviously because I wasn't eating with anyone else who was Asian, it was me and some other white kids said, oh, well, you don't want any of that. And I said, well, I do. And what is it? And so I ended up ordering something that was a raw fish dish. And she, I mean, I had to like really force my hand. And she was like, you're not going to like it. And I was like, I'll pay for it. I don't like, I'll pay you ahead. Like I'll right. pay up front right. for it. I don't care. Like I want to try this thing. And I'm wondering if you think that um, given where we've come to with the, you know, the now the existence, you know, the possibility of like issue one of Lucky Peach that's all about ramen in this country. Do you think that that has changed in those kinds of restaurants where people come in and there is more of a willingness because people are wanting to try those things? I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, I think that there's often an assumption that there's like a, a, a secretness that's going on with a menu like that. But I know the next issue of Lucky Beach is about Los Angeles and uh, Tin Win, who's a, a writer out there, wrote a profile of uh, jazz uh, singing a song at Jitlada, which is a great Southern Thai restaurant in Thai town in Los Angeles. And Jazz and her brother, Tui, who's the chef, took over the restaurant in 96 or 2006. So it had been an existing restaurant that they took over. And Tui added a, a, a separate menu of, of his dishes from the province in Thailand that he's from. And it was only in Thai. And there was a... This is like back in the Little Three Happiness Forum chow hound days. Mm. Someone who came in took that menu, took it away, got it translated, put it back up online. Everyone went in and started eating it. And then those became the dishes that Jitlada were known, was known for. And I think that it's probably more the success of restaurants that are doing, you know, an authentic expression of what their food is. And, and, and the, um, the lesson uh, or the example they, they set for the community of restaurants that they're a part of that, that helps people open up, you know, and, and, and try to serve a, a wider range of things. Because, you know, I think the thing that gets forgotten about a lot is that small restaurants like that are small businesses that run on, like, razor-thin margins by people who are probably putting, like, a lot of what they have into running it. And if you assume that everyone wants to eat pad thai, you're, you know, it's your best served to make sure, sure there's some pad thai on the menu. Yeah, but, right. But I do think... I do think that we're seeing in New York and, and, you know, I think everywhere, like seeing a little bit more of actual, you know, regional expressions of different cuisines with the understanding that that will help a restaurant differentiate itself in the marketplace. And right. I think that that's not to get all like restaurant or businesses, but restaurants are businesses. <laughs> are, and I think it's sure. important to understand that motivation that restaurateurs have to, to, to offer a certain set of dishes. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm curious to know, you know, we were talking right before the show started, um, you know, you've written a number of books now I'm in the middle of writing my first book. Um, when do you write like for you, when is the, when is the time to write? I mean, I know that for me with two children about the same age, seven and three, like 
it's really hard to find time to write. And for me, it's early in the morning. Like I get up at five, five thirty to get like an hour or two before anybody's awake. That used to be, yeah, my move used to be writing in the morning. Um, and now between, you know, doing books and, and having lucky peaches kind of a nebulous media entity to try to run, I can't tell you when I write, except that I know when the deadline is. I know when the deadline has passed, and then I know it is time to start writing <laughs> and get that writing in. So, um, I mean, oftentimes I'll just have to take myself out of work for a day and sit at home and and, and crank out the words, yeah. um, which is not entirely unrelated to the way that I wrote when I wrote at the Times, because, you know, there was like a, a, a deadline every week, so there was always a day you knew it was due. So that day or the day before would be the one I sat down to write. But I, I do have dreams of someday having some sort of writing practice where yeah. there's like a time, but I, you know, I mean, I was looking at the pile of books on my desk this morning and I'm like, could I schedule in like an hour a week where I get to read something? I, I'm right. Uh, I'm right there with you, but it's, you know, with the amount of uh, stories that we do on luckybeach.com and, and the, the kind of rigor with which we try to put together issues of the magazine and the demands of other enterprises we undertake at Lucky Peach. There's not, you know, I feel like I'm usually in like fireman mode. It's like whatever, yeah. whatever's on fire the most is what's going to get the most attention. Sure. And, and then the thing that I feel like is the real wild card in all of that is having kids where, you know, I mean, there were days where I was like, all right, I'm going to focus. I'm going to finish three recipes this morning. I'm going to get up at five. I'm going to have my espresso i'm gonna sit down it's gonna be quiet and i would like literally like make my espresso sit down and like open my laptop which doesn't sound like anything but something in the doing of that right. and it's my like a, two-year-old was like yeah. up yeah. and he'd be like daddy and i was just like man yeah. i'd like this was gonna be my time you're so cute let's hang out like right you try to like put him on your lap and then suddenly like yeah my three-year-old is really into like typing her name yeah. you know make the font bigger so yeah no there's not a uh, a necessarily a good time to write, but I don't know that for, I don't know that m most writers necessarily have like a dedicated practice like that. I mean, I think yeah. that there's, I think the thing that's been most helpful to me and the writing process is accepting that procrastination is part of it. Sure. So like on that day when you're like, all right, cool, I'm going to finish up work at three and I'm going to, from three to five, I'm going to like work on this and you find yourself unable to go anywhere near desk, book, pencil, pen, computer, anything, go to a record store. It's like, okay, well, that's part of, you know, that's the, the, the stew is on the back of the stove simmering at that point, you yeah. know? So I, I, that's the lie I tell myself yeah. to justify my <laughs> record shopping. I, uh, <laughs> I'll try that next time I'm planning to write, I'll go record shopping. Yeah. That's good. Um, yeah, I, uh, I read Philip K. Yeah. Dick, I believe used to write from, I mean, like some kind of crazy schedule, like noon to 1am, like a daily it's, or yeah, something. And then I read someone else, uh, told me to look it up and I, I was looking at it. Um, Hunter Thompson had like an insane, like normal day. There was a, some journalist followed him around and it was like, you know, wake up at 4pm, like drink a beer and a coffee, like do some cocaine, yeah, smoke a cigarette. There was like, like a point in his life where, you know, he was like living kind of on an isolated mountain, I think in Colorado. Yeah. And he had gongs set up around the property that he would shoot his rifle at. You know, I mean, I yeah. think that, 
you know, I don't think that my wife or children would approve of me setting up a gong in our apartment and shooting it. But if I was like, the muse demands it, maybe that would be a persuasive argument. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think um, I can get up at 4 p.m. and like do a rail of coke and like no, start that, writing. Yeah. Not... That, again, would not play well with the family. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I mean, I remember reading um, like I think Hemingway's program for a while was getting up, getting to his desk by nine. And being done at two, and then just deciding that was the time you could just start drinking. Like you know, right, that was just, happy hour. Yeah, your day is over at that point. Yeah. So the evening has begun, yeah. and and th- that sounds like a wonderful schedule. But sure. again, you know, if you if you've had a couple rum, you know, Hemingway daiquiris before you pick up your kids at school, yeah. you know, could lead to some sort of meeting you don't want to have to attend. Certainly not after the yeah. rum. Uh, We're going to take a a short break um, and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. And when we come back, uh, we'll dig into talking about power vegetables. I don't go in for understanding when you are away. Can't use my heart to think away the time. In my room I will await you and so soon I will relate you. And tie your finger right on up to mine. Today's program was brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association. The Nutritional Therapy Association, NTA, is a vocational nutrition school that develops, trains, and certifies nutritional therapy practitioners and nutritional therapy consultants to understand and reverse the tragic and unsuspected effects of the modern diet on their clients based on their bio-individual nutritional needs. There's no perfect diet for everyone. Their philosophy is that the myriad of health problems that plague modern society result from weakness in the body's physiological foundations as a result of poor nutrition and that everyone deserves to be healthy. Throughout NTA seminars, students access a wide range of educational tools and techniques that help identify and correct nutritional imbalances from a holistic perspective, emphasizing the importance of properly prepared, nutrient-dense whole foods. Their organization was founded on the teachings of Weston A. Price and the science of Dr. Francis M. Pottinger. For more information, visit nutritionaltherapy.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and joining me today in the studio, if you're just joining us, is Peter Meehan from Lucky Peach. Um, So I want to dig into talking about Peter's new book, Power Vegetables, which came out yesterday, uh, is currently the number one new release in cooking on Amazon. Yay. Um, also available in your independent bookstore, which I you know, hope you will all support. Yeah, I've got to go by McNally Jackson on my way home and scribble in a bunch of their books. Cool. Um, and you'll be at the Brooklyn Kitchen on November 1st to which, scribble in all of our books. Which and, will be fun. And there'll be beer. There will be. Which is a great additive to books. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really... Um, it's a great book. I love that the take on it. I feel like, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, we've seen a lot of meat heavy, uh, cookbooks in recent years. And, um, I think certainly trending towards vegetables is something that's happening for sure. Um, and you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with sort of riding that wave or being at the top or the front of it, um, with this and the, you know, but I love the idea that the book, um, is fun and you write about that in the, yeah, I mean, that was the. I mean, I think, yeah, I think in the next year, you know, I mean, Brooks Headley at Superiority Burger and Jeremy Fox at Rusty Canyon Wine Bar both have vegetable cookbooks coming out next year. And um, uh, and I think those are both going to be, like, epic, inventive, really yeah. wonderful, like, cool vegetable cookbooks. Um, 
you know, this came on the heels of 101 Easy Asian Recipes, which was kind of like near and dear to my heart and a lot of dishes that I'd learned about and started cooking in the 25 and under years. And then this was like a new set of recipes that we put together. And and I, I had sold the book to the publisher and they're like a vegetable cookbook and went through a number of iterations of what the book could be. Uh, Alice Waters Vegetables. I don't know if you yep. have that book, but it's a really, that was a very formative educational book in my life, but it's but it's big. It's, you know, and it's like it was written after 30 years of cooking vegetables. So I'm like, okay, we can't, we can't do an alphabetical guide to, to vegetables, especially with this somewhat like global perspective we try to have on cooking. Because like by the time we get through bitter gourd and, right. and a calibre, you know, it'll be, <laughs> we'll, we'll be done at letter D and, and yeah. have filled up the book. So I wrote an email one day to my editor that had all these like really dumb all caps exclamation point phrases about like, you know, kind of like Tony Robbins on ayahuasca, uh, (laughs) you know, about vegetables. And they're like, great, that sounds great. Do that. And I'm like, why didn't you just do like a seasonal vegetable cookbook? So it became this like (laughs) thing of like, what's a power vegetable. And and it became this like, uh, sometimes fun, sometimes frustrating, like thing of, of cooking dishes and, and then staring at them and being like, are are you a power vegetable? And, and, and figuring out who got to, to come inside the covers. Are, are there any vegetables that you decided don't have enough power to be in the book? You know, we we tried not to go too too obscure on vegetables because I think like one on one easy Asian. I, I like that book a lot because I think we tried to make it like useful and and cookable from to to use a non standard English phrase about it. And I and I think that that's. You know, it's just like it is a is a function of being a dad, or you know, a function of, of of working a lot and getting home late. Like I, you know, I don't know that that calling for bitter melon in here would have made those pages the most useful to the people who choose to buy it. Sure. So it was it was about that. But I was surprised to find in pulling you know people on my staff and and people we worked with on the book that like asparagus was incredibly unpopular with like everyone I talked to. They're like ah. I don't know about asparagus. So there's like only one huh. asparagus recipe, even though like in springtime, you know, like when yeah. we've gotten out of rutabaga season in New yeah. York, I'm always so excited. I want to eat it yeah. every day. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, that and okra also found a relatively difficult reception, though that's not a particular surprise. Is that people, people tend to get prickly about okra sometimes. Yeah. What about Brussels sprouts? Brussels sprouts, you know, I think ever since the 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 discovery of burning your Brussels sprouts yeah. was made by man, um, you know, in like the last 10 years, like a, a hard roasted Brussels sprout is something that pretty much everybody can get behind. But yeah. but it's one of those things I remember as kids, like Brussels sprouts were synonymous with disgusting. Um, and now like my kids will eat Brussels sprouts. Like it's sure. just a normal thing to do. So. I mean, I, I had a slightly different experience. My mom actually was great at cooking Brussels sprouts. I always loved them. She always served them with mustard, mustard and butter. Okay. Um, and I always thought they were great. And so I grew up having this theory about things like brussels sprouts and lima beans my mom also cooked really good lima beans that people were like sort of trained socially to think they were gross by the media or by you know maybe i mean i you know this is like reaching but maybe there's like an episode of the brady bunch where that like the lima beans are considered gross right something like that and people don't actually know that they don't like them right the idea that like you would wrinkle your nose at broccoli i thought was standard operating practice in my childhood but like again like my kids will eat broccoli above you know like cheeseburgers which again right maybe they're i'm just not inundating them with the right mainstream media um 
but but it leaves more cheeseburgers. For I me. mean, I had an interesting sort of moment of that recently. I was reading a book that I, I would imagine you're familiar with, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Yes. To my children, and there's a there's a page in that book, and I love. I mean, the illustrations of that book are amazing, and the food references and stuff. And there's a moment where they talk about the town being inundated with cream cheese and jelly sandwiches. Yes. And there's this sort of like very sickly looking you know sickly looking illustration of a kid holding like a stack of them and i have always had this visceral reaction against cream cheese and jelly interesting and i think that it's because of that wow page of that book not because because i think about it from an academic like from a I, if i think about those things i'm like oh yeah that would be delicious but my like have this like gut reaction that like oh that's gross and i think it's from that book wow i mean i think that there's a book called bread and jam for francis yep. um i don't know if you know that one but uh the badger character francis demands bread and jam all the time and eventually her parents just like wait her out and only feed her bread and jam until she's ready to join in on the food of the family but and i thought okay this is a good you know brainwashing tool for my children but i still think my daughter would take bread and jam uh most meals of the day so yeah um, I mean, I, I I noticed in in paging through Power Vegetables that uh, you you pay a little bit of uh, sort of homage to Richard Olney, one of one of my favorites with the Time Life uh, right. I mean, there's the yeah, series there, and Food of the World. Series. There's a shout out to Richard Olney, and I brought uh, I brought the Richard Olney a couple of the Richard Olney books in today for the guy who's taking over graphic design of Lucky Peach. So like to 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 baptize him in in, in that church, um, but it is like the least. Richard only book possible um, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the editorial tone and like sure. the sans serif all caps font yeah. and you know yeah. things that I imagine he would have been aghast uh, but, yeah. but yeah I mean the Time Life cookbook series is one of those things that just never you know it's it's never not a fountain of inspiration to go and pick those up off the shelf yeah i mean that's that's a it's a series that i discovered i don't know 15 years ago or so and started picking up at garage sales and eventually amassed the full 28 volume set yes. and i love them i mean they they to me you know that the wealth of information in those books is incredible and i feel like there is a there's a nod to those in power vegetables there's a ton of information in this book but there's also a nod to the explanation that is encompassed in those books. I mean, I love the the how to roll a burrito sort of page in Power Vegetables where it really shows you how you roll a burrito correctly, which is something a lot of people don't do well if they're making burritos at home. They roll them open-ended like a dosa or something like that. And those books are very informative with hands in the photos and holding the tools. And yeah, I, really I mean, I you know, I think that's... I, I think I wrote... Um, and especially in like the early issues of Lucky Peach, we covered a lot of chef cooking for the ideas that it embodied or represented. Um, they weren't necessarily dishes that you would cook at home, but by reading through the process, you would learn about uh, the way a chef thinks about handling an ingredient or, or creating flavor or about technique. And I think that that was an important thing for, for us to do at the time, for me to do at the time, but certainly what we were interested in. But after a few years of that, it, you know, the challenge that became more interesting to me was like, how do I make books um, that I can give to, you know, a friend or a relative who isn't in the food world and, and gives them the tools to make food that they're going to find like delicious and they're going to have success with. Cause I'm sure, you know, when I got into food, I mean, I learned about everything through cookbooks and the number of times I would attempt a recipe and have it completely fail. Like that will ruin 
your night, that will ruin yeah. your party, that will like that's like that's the thing like books should never do. So it's yep. you know it's it, it's certainly rooted in wanting to make sure that the explainers in there help people achieve success at home. Yeah. Um, and the, how are you how are you doing that in your book, which is about vinegar? Because that's a that's a thing. Mitchell Davis, a friend of mine, yep. uh, he was like the first guy I ever met who had like you know the cask on the counter where he poured the unfinished bottom of a bottle of wine to make vinegar. But I've never tried making it at home. Is yeah. it is it easy to make at home? So I mean, one of the amazing things about it, I think, um, and and one of the things that I'm trying to sort of you know promote in in the writing of my book is that it is incredibly easy. Um, I mean, the work is all done by, you know, millions of little bacteria. You don't have to do much. You just have to provide them a nice place to live, kind of. Um, and there's very little that you need to do it. You need a vessel. You need some kind of alcohol, um, right. wine, beer, sake, whatever. Um, and, you know, or you can make it straight through from fruit juice. I mean, if you have a, you know, if you have a distended bottle of apple cider in the back of your fridge, like that's already on its way. Right. You just can leave that on your counter in a jar, essentially, with some cheesecloth over cheesecloth over the top to keep out flies um flies do love vinegar right um and just let it sort of run its course and it'll it for the most part will just do it um and will become will become vinegar that in most cases is better than what you can buy right because it's being made from better ingredients than exactly whatever mm-hmm. industrial vinegar yeah is being and made. i mean i do like also in your i love your pantry sort of here are the things in your vegetable power vegetable pantry to kind of kick up your vegetable flavorings um and i like that you talk about white vinegar i mean white vinegar I think is sort of eschewed by chefs as a kind of like uh, you know it's an industrial product. Well, it, it, you know, a, I think it's know. a it's an end product of that fascination with Richard Olney's universe and like embracing Provence and Italy yep. and wine vinegar became this important ingredient and it was a turn away from malt and cider and white vinegar. But um, but I've seen in recent years, you know, I think uh, I think Kevin Pamulier when he was at. Uh, 30 acres in New Jersey. I think uh, Brooks uses it a little bit. It's a purity burger, but a lot of people who make like really flavor dense food like know that like if you just want pure acid yeah. and you know no other flavor coming with it, white vinegar is is a is a powerful one to use. Yeah. And sometimes you just want that. You don't want the flavor right. of the cider in there. You just want that. Right. Or, or you know the, because of the higher acidity, something like rice wine, you know, vinegar is going to be. You're gonna have you're gonna be diluting more and not acidifying as much. Yep. So, yeah. So yeah, I mean, making vinegar at home totally totally easy to do um, for sure. Um, in that pantry section, there's an ingredient that I am totally unfamiliar with that I found in reading through it. Um, tell me about hing. Hing is another name for asafetida. Sure. Which I, I mean, I know I know what it is. I've never used it, so I don't know that much about sort of its application. I mean, I. Wish I had a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of like the cuisines of India. I I don't. You know, I'm I'm more of a tourist there. But asafetida is a flavor, kind of like you know, amateur that like uh, uh, fermented uh, like the the black mango peel thing, mm-hmm. and it's and it's got a sulfurous note okay. to it, and that's. Like not an appealing food word to use, right. you know. Like uh, like sulfur isn't usually what you think of as wanting to eat your food, but there's like it adds a depth and a and an umami characteristic to food that's kind of irreplicable elsewhere, and and is just something. I mean, you use the tiniest, you know, knife tip of it, and it, and it infuses the dish with a with a flavor that's you know, I mean, that's very common in in a lot of Indian cuisines, but but 
when you're when you're touristing on it and putting in your vegetables, you're like, oh my god, like this completely changed the nature of the dish. So, so put it in that way. And I chose hing as a name for it just because the etymology of asafetida, which is really probably the more common way of referring to it, seemed to have some problematic history. And mm-hmm. so I thought I would I would opt into the hing. Got it. Cool. Um, so. Uh, I noticed looking at the Lucky Peach website that issues one, two, and three are sold out. Is there are there plans to reprint those at any time? You know, we talk about it periodically, but it's a it's a funny thing of it being a twelve dollar magazine that there's not like a great business opportunity in sure. in reprinting a bunch more magazines. Yeah. But I think we have like four cases left of issue one and a, a few of two and three. So I think we're going to put. The, like the the remainder that we have out on the site this holiday season and and see what the interest is because those issues do go for like 150 to 300 dollars on eBay but it's also hard to know if there's like 12 people on eBay who think they're really cool right. or if there's actually you know a, a couple hundred for thousand yeah. people who want it yeah. but but certainly I mean it would be great to be able to you know to bind together copies of Lucky Peach and put them on the bookshelf, uh, you yeah. know, down the line. Yeah, no, I think that, it, that was that was a question I was going to ask if that's coming sort of as a compendium kind of. I mean, I would like to, but it's also, I mean, I thought, okay, we'll do years, we'll do four issues at a time, except those first, uh, the first nine or ten issues are 174 pages each, which means that a four issue compilation, you know, it ends up being kind of a telephone yeah. book. So right. figuring out how to bring that information, you know, bring those issues back to life is, is something we, we, we talk about, but we haven't figured out. Got it. Um, well, we're almost out of time, but I, uh, just as I was arriving in the studio, I got a, a you know, some spam email, um, that, uh, had a, what I thought might be kind of like an interesting topic to kind of end on, which is that, um, PF Chang's yes. other Chang, yes. uh, has just partnered with chef to do what they're calling farm to door to walk meals Far, oh like uh blue apron-y stuff <laughs> yeah. and i just th- I, I wanted to just sort of touch on that for a minute just because i thought that was kind of i feel like the farm to consumer like wording and verbiage has kind of gone too far at that point i'm sort of just like it's kind of over it it's gone fully over it's like not even the shark jump anymore. no it's, it's like it's well yeah, past that i think so um yeah i've never done any of those pre-packaged meal things because i like shopping for food too much like it's you know and and i think talking to people about you know cooking they complain about washing dishes or having to shop and i'm like no that's cooking like the five minutes you get like shaking a hot pan at the stove that's that's really a detour between like spending your time shopping and 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 spending your time cleaning up afterwards but yeah i'm not a i can't say that i'm a candidate for farm to table (laughs) to walk cooking so that won't be appearing as part of the 102 asian recipes who knows who knows the future is unwritten (laughs) well um you know thank you peter for uh for joining me do you have any other any other book events coming up you want to mention other than the one at brooklyn kitchen we've got a event in los angeles on sunday at like a sweet green in hollywood with jess coslow from squirrel and she's making a special jam for that so that should be fun and this guy's son of raw who's kind of part of that psych music scene is gonna play music there and if the series goes to seven games i will rent a goat to lure (laughs) anti-cubs fans (laughs) to the event um 
And then, uh, no, and then the Brooklyn Kitchen event. I mean, that's really the big launch party that we're having. So I'm excited to have that with you guys. Cool. Well, everybody uh, check out thebrooklynkitchen.com for, for tickets to that and uh, luckypeach.com for more on Lucky Peach and Peter. And uh, I'm going to see if I can get the right number of letters in here. Uh, you can find Peter on Twitter P, at PFM, PFM, PFM. I signed up to Twitter late. <laughs> um, did, and, and on Instagram, at Grease Trap um, or at Lucky Peach. Did, does someone have at Grease Trap on Twitter? Uh, someone had Eckery's Trap on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, it was, you know, I was a late arrival. Yeah, sure. Well, um, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tattashore, who engineers this show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.